Recorded live. Good morning, Northern Maine. Welcome to the Northern Maine Landman Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, the Contents of Maine. Citizen-produced radio broadcast today in Maine and worldwide on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google TalkShoe Radio, Northern Maine Landman, and it'll pop up there on your screen. Well, awful lot going on in the world. There, got some... Personnel changes at the White House get more properly aligned with our president. He's got his agenda. He wants to wants us to be more assertive in our international trade. We have huge trade deficits with Red China. Why are we talking about Red China on a Northern Maine landman show? Supposed to be about Northern Maine matters. Well. This matters to Northern Maine for several reasons. First is that the Constitution of the United States of America says that the federal government is supposed to be funded by tariffs. It's still in there. We've never changed that. We've never passed an amendment to, to the Constitution that says, oh, we can't, we can't charge tariffs. Now, tariffs between states are prohibited. You know, you can't, we ship huge amounts of maple sap every year from Maine to Vermont. We've got all down the Canadian border where the land slopes away from the from the St. John for the most part. We've got a beautiful rock maple sugar bush, thousands of acres of, of maple trees. And people go up there this time of year and it's heavy snow. And they tap the maple trees and they run the run plastic pipe now, blue tubing for the most part. And the sap runs downhill and they've got vacuum pumps, gasoline generators and vacuum pumps to draw more sap out of the trees. It doesn't hurt the tree. Uh, when they first started doing that, it's all oh, the trees going to die of thirst. No. It's not going to happen. It works great. You get more sap, and you get more sugar, and it's efficient. It's worth the money to run those tubes and worth the money to run the vacuum pumps and draw more sap. We boil down the sap more than half, 
In other words, we reduce the volume of, of the fluid, a liquid, by more than half, and we ship it in tank trucks to Vermont. And truth be told, an awful lot of that famous Vermont maple syrup comes from Maine. They don't boil it all the way down. I don't, I don't know exactly how much, but they boil it down quite a ways. And they're careful not to do it with, uh, you know, to scorch the sap, because that, that uh, changes the, the, the taste. And when they boil the sap down, it's actually going into a boiler now. It's not just a pan of sap on top of a wood stove, the way it used to be when I was a little shaver. They've got a big tank of sap, and they put the sap in there, and they put a vacuum on the tank and heat it up. And the sugar doesn't boil off. The sugar stays there. And they reduce the water content. That water content goes up in the air. You see columns of white water vapor over the sugar sap, just like we always did. But it's passed through a stainless steel vacuum chamber. And we reduce the the uh, water content, increase the sugar content percentage-wise, and put it in a tank truck, send it to Vermont. Why don't we put it in a tank truck and send it to Maine? It's closer. <laughs> Simple logistics, geography. Western Maine is, uh, is close to uh, the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont, if you look at a map. And we go south from northern Maine. We go south to Vermont. I went to a, a meeting of uh, the Project Appleseed. All the shoot bosses and, and uh, state coordinators from the northeast met at a farm in Vermont, and we had a great time. It's, it's a bunch of like-minded people, patriots, every one of them, including me. You know, and over there three years ago to this northeast meeting that we had. And I I told the people there, I said, I rarely get this far south. You know, I live north of Vermont. Well, that's Quebec, as I know. I'm, I live further north than the northeast tip of Vermont. As you look at Vermont and New Hampshire, New Hampshire's skinny on top. So you don't have to go very far across New Hampshire to get into Vermont from western Maine. Just go through Berlin, keep going west, and next, next thing you know, you're in Vermont. So the northern part of Vermont is wide. Southern part of Vermont is narrow, and vice versa with New Hampshire. So that's where our maple syrup goes, a lot of it. But this coming Sunday is the after tomorrow is is uh, Maine Maple Weekend or Maine Maple Sunday. And people can go out, look at the maple trees, look at the sap buckets. So they'll have a few trees, the old-fashioned sap buckets, but nearly all. All the trees are are uh, tapped using plastic jugs. People save their gallon jugs for milk jugs for all year. Wash them out, make sure they're good and clean, no soap residue, and they simply hang the hang the uh, the jug on the spile. And they have spiles now that are made specifically for gallon jugs. <coughs> Excuse me. And the uh, spile is the tap. You drill a hole in the maple tree and then you tap the spile in there. It's a little spout with a curve on the end and it. it drips maple syrup. Some days it 
just about runs maple syrup, and it's a real fast drip. And it doesn't take dripping water very long to fill a gallon jug. But that's what we do, and they put a little cover over it so it doesn't rain into the bucket. If we have a rainy day, you know, they cover the bucket, and even then some rain gets in. You don't want to dilute it because it takes from 30 to 36 gallons of sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. You've got you to take 36 gallons of freezing cold water, sometimes even in the bucket, even in the sap bucket. It skims over with ice because it's 20 degrees at night and 40 degrees in the daytime. And uh, it takes a lot of heat to bring 40 gallons of ice-cold water to a boil and keep it boiling until it's rendered down <clears throat> down to one gallon of sap. But you can't just boil it all down to one gallon. They could scorch it. It would get overheated. So what you do is you keep adding sap in one end, and it goes through uh, the passageway there in the sap pan, and they drip it out, out the other end, and they'll sample it. When the sugar content is high enough, they'll they'll turn it off. And it, if it isn't high enough, they'll pour it back into the into the uh, pan where it boils, and and uh, let the sugar content get higher. But you pour the new the new sap in one end, and it's cold. They sometimes they'll bring it up to room temperature or so before they pour it in, but they Pour it in very slowly. But it's, it's, as I say, it's pouring in there 36 times faster than it comes out. Pretty interesting. The old timers knew. They, they knew how to do it. They knew how to do it without scorching the sap. And, uh, of course, you smell the delicious uh, smell of maple syrup in that vapor coming up through the roof of the sugar shack. So I did that when I was a kid, and uh, no, it was it was a lot of fun. Two things we did in the wintertime were sugaring off, tapping maple trees, and ice for the ice house. But you wait until the ice is 14 inches thick on a lake, and you you cut the ice, and then uh, sometimes you can let it freeze again and. It, when it, it gets to be 14 inches thick, you, you cut the ice in the same spot. And then you let you leave the ice out on wooden planks beside the lake. And the ice house was always on the south side of the lake because the sun doesn't hit the ice house. And it's, in a, it's a pine grove. Pines don't lose their needles. So the ice house would be in a pine grove on the south shore of the lake. Where the sun never hits, excuse me. Where the sun never hits the ice house, and they would save cedar sawdust, big piles of cedar sawdust, and they were undercover. These, this was cedar that was saved for the ice house, so it was in a, you know, sawdust shed, which was protected from the sun, and uh, they'd lay down planks on the floor so the bottom layer of ice didn't sit on the ground and get muddy. So they put down some planks just laying on the ground just to keep the 
keep the ice blocks off the off the uh, the planks. Ground temperature, if it's not frozen in Maine, is 55 degrees. Of course, it gets hot in the summertime on the surface in the sun, but when you take water out of the well, you take the temperature of that water, it's about 55 degrees. The sun never hits it, and that's the ground temperature. Whether it's a dug well, you know, the dug well is 10 or 12 feet deep, the water will be 55 degrees or close to it. Water from a drilled well coming up 200 feet down. Some places in Maine where the water water table is very low, there's a good solid layer of of shale or granite, which are the two most common stone types. And the uh, the uh, temperature of the water coming out of that well is about 55 degrees. Further north, the further north you go, the colder it is. And there was a time when, when Canada had had uh, miles of ice, and Maine had miles of ice, actually miles thick. And there was so much ice in the world at that time that the water level was down in the oceans, way down. Maine fishermen, trawlers, and draggers drag nets on the bottom of the ocean. And uh, some, there's some places out there in the Gulf of Maine where the bottom of the ocean is relatively smooth. And uh, they drag it. And they'd come up with a mastodon skull or a mastodon tusk or the jaws, jaw bones of a mastodon and some leg bones of a mastodon. They'd come up off the bottom. And they went, you know, people, people say, how in the world is that possible? Well, that was, the, that was the beach. That was the water level at that time, a long time ago, thousands of years ago. And the mastodons didn't swim out there and drown. They walked out there. They were mastodons on the shore of of North America. And they died out. They were just hunted to extinction by people. There were people there. There are campsites there. There are stone foundations out there where people had houses. And they've got well, they go out, they've gone out to where the mastodon skulls are found, and there's a place there. It was a nice big cove, you know, along the edge of the ocean, and there were buildings there. They were built by the red paint people. Well, these were not the Penobscot, the Piscataquis, uh, uh, the Passamaquoddies, Micmacs, the Maliseets, Maliseets. They, uh, these, those were the, these are the new tribes, people here long before the white man came, but they were much newer than the red paint people who were here thousands of years ago. And the red paint people uh, were, uh, you know, came out of, out of Europe and Asia from the east. So... 
we know these things. You, know, you can determine archaeologically. Then there's the Kenwick man out in in Oregon, and they able they were able to uh, determine from his ancestry from his DNA. I'm personally a little suspicious about submitting your DNA to the authorities who they share the information, just like they share every keystroke, every phone call that you make, every search that you do on your computer, every search you do on your cell phone. It's all... It's all... Uh, recorded and I did a search on a Polaris ATV because one of my clients is getting a Polaris uh, along with a farm that he's buying. He never sat on an ATV before his whole life but he really likes the idea of being able to get on this thing and it's three wide. It's a big, big Polaris and the farm closes next Wednesday up in Worcester County in a nice place. 83 acres, 53 acres of field, 30 acres of woods. Stream going through it. I mean, it's just, it's really nice. So uh, he's buying this beautiful farm. That's his life's dream, and he's, he's looking to live his dream. So I looked up information on the Polaris and sent him some information on it. And uh, it's the economy model. It's it's big. It's the biggest model with, with single seat, you know, three wide. It's wider than the, than the two wide seats. But it's got the small engine. It doesn't have a 1,000cc engine. It's got a 570cc engine, which is all this guy needs because his farm is relatively gently rolling, you know, it drains well, but it doesn't have any steep hillsides or anything. He doesn't need all that power. He's not going to be using it to pull heavy trailers. So, but you do one search for something like the Polaris, and next thing you know, you're getting all kinds of proposals and email from Polaris dealers. So Google wheels on you. Google reports your activity. And I'll, I'll pass on a caution here. If you don't know what a word means, okay, look it up in the dictionary. <laughs> don't Google it. You're going to get information, everything, from all kinds of people that you didn't want, especially if it's a word that you'd rather not be associated with. I looked up a word. I won't, I won't say what it was. It was, you know, an ordinary-sounding word. That I just hadn't seen it before. No connotation whatsoever if, if it's the first time you're looking at this word, but it's a word that you don't want to be associated with. Well, I got a bunch of unwanted emails related to this word. <laughs> and eventually it tapered off. About six months I was getting these emails and uh, apparently the email producers have realized that I am not interested in this particular subject so they they uh, they've stopped. 
it was kind of funny actually but you know you don't want to my advice is, is if you don't know what a word means don't google it because google it it will share it with the world that you're interested in this particular topic in my case uh, you know you google stuff I I uh, I Google stuff on ATVs. I Google stuff on snowmobiles to look for a specific model of prices and things like that. Various things, hunting and fishing stuff, you know, I'm an outdoorsman. Google real estate stuff, and try to keep it pertaining to real estate. And, and uh, I think we're going to have a good spring in the real estate business. We've got a beautiful home for sale right now. It's uh, three bedrooms. And uh, full basement, and it's rustic style. It's a natural wood on the exterior. It's got a 50-foot porch, runs the full length of the house. It's covered. You can sit out there in a rainy day, sit on the porch, and uh, just look at the rain. They hang plants there in the summertime all along the edge of that porch roof, and dozens of hummingbirds come into these plants. The hummingbirds just like red flowers. They'll spot red somewhere. If you, you can hang up a piece of red cloth from a tree branch, and hummingbirds will come and investigate that red cloth, and they'll realize, well, there's no nectar in that, but they spot that red from a long distance. And this, this place is, it will sell this spring. The folks didn't want it shown in the middle of the winter because it you know, it was just inconvenient for them and inconvenient for the people who want to look at it. People like to walk the land. Right now, we've still got a lot of snow in the woods, especially where the, where the sun doesn't hit it. The last places to thaw, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, are the east-west roads and the east-west trails because the sun doesn't hit them. Four people just walked the Appalachian Trail, the 100-mile wilderness from uh, over, over in... Uh, the town that makes all the slate over there, the road that goes up to Greenville, Moosehead Trail, Anson. From Anson to uh, to the Golden Road, by up by uh, up by the bridge, the uh, that's a hundred miles through the wilderness. And the highest point on that trail is White Cap Mountain, and these guys took off with with uh, snowshoes. And one of them, one of the guys' snowshoes broke the first day. He had a choice. He can go up, go back without snowshoes or he could uh, stay with his friends. And they, they took they took and lashed the snowshoes together. They cut some sticks. <clears throat> probably all those, maybe birds. Lashed his snowshoes back together again. <clears throat> And then uh, get on. Get up atop of White Cap Mountain. The snow was more than six feet deep, and it was powder. And I don't care what how big your snowshoes are, you're going to struggle. So they take turns breaking trail, and take your ski poles and punch in, and they made really slow progress. And with the snow four feet deep on the whole thing sometimes six feet deep or more up on Whitecap, where it's drifted, there's no no spotted paint on the rocks that you can see. You know, the, the trail is marked with white paint. And 
it wasn't marked. Of course, it's covered with snow. But they had walked it last last year in the summertime, and they had recorded the trail on their GPSs. And the GPS will tell them, your trail is 20 feet to your left. And you break out into it, and there's these waist-high trees because the they got volunteers that trim the Appalachian Trail, go through there with brush loppers, and they cut the branches off, and you're walking through a green tunnel. A lot of work goes into maintaining the trail. Well, these folks, uh, the problem is that with four feet of snow, the top of the trail is knee-high to waist-high. So they're fighting their way through the branches and uh, trying to stay on the trail. It took them two weeks to go the 100 miles. I don't know the exact. Maybe, maybe it was 11 days. You know, it was more than a week. But they made it, these three guys. Experienced winter campers. And uh, and they made it. It's a commendable thing. But they had cell phones and they had GPSs. Just think back to the colonial days when when uh, Benedict Arnold led the Quebec expedition. They went up to Kennebec with bateaus, and they dragged the bateaus upstream. So finally they they couldn't go any further, and they abandoned the river where it, now it, you know, the river comes out of Moosehead Lake. The Kennebec River comes out of Moosehead, and they have the east outlet and the west outlet. And there wasn't any dam at Moosehead Lake. There's two dams now. You control the level of Moosehead Lake. So Moosehead Lake was probably 15 or 18 feet lower than it is today. And the Arnold expedition went up and left the, the Kennebec watershed, went up over the height of land up the Arnold Trail, and the ponds up on by the Canadian border are first Arnold, second Arnold, third Arnold, and they get to the Canadian border, and then the the border is is uh, the height of land. So then they follow, pick up a brook, they follow the brook down, and the brook becomes the Chaudière River, and they hiked down the Chaudière and invaded Quebec City, much to the astonishment of the Redcoats. That was back when Benedict Arnold was a good guy. And Benedict Arnold decided that independence was not the way to go, and he went, went over to the side of the Redcoats, British Army, and worked against our patriots. That happens in political parties. It happens in local government. It happens nationally. People think they know a better way than our forefathers. They want to change things. The Republican Party in the state of Maine twenty years ago and ten years ago decided we just had to get rid of these nuisance conservatives. And they did. They got rid of most of the conservatives out of the leadership in the Republican Party. And they became progressives. 
and they weren't very different than the Democrats. They were all progressives. Both parties were full of progressives and having a fine time there. And they would make shows and indications that they were opposing the other side, and it was a wink, wink, nod, nod, and they weren't they weren't opposing the other side. And we had a fellow named Everett McLeod from Lee, Maine. Lee is a little town in Penobscot County, close to Washington County, but they're in Penobscot. And they're not very far from Roostick, way up in the corner there of Penobscot County. Everett McLeod ran for the legislature. Good fellow. Traveling salesman, been in, a, been in a lot of main mills and a lot of main businesses, known around, good reputation. And he ran for the legislature. He got elected. And the progressives that were running the Republican Party at the time said, now you're going you're gonna to you follow, do, do exactly what we tell you to do. He said, okay, well, sometimes that'll be possible. You know, well, no, no, you've always got to do what we tell you to do, always. No, I'm going to vote the way I campaign. I'm going to vote the way my constituents want me to vote. I don't want to raise taxes. Oh, we have to raise taxes. We've got all these projects we want to do. Everett said, no. You've got to cut back on some of these things. The first year Everett was in, Everett and 12 other people got together, and they said no to the state budget. What they did is they go in the back room and the, and the progressives and both parties would decide how they're going to spend the taxpayers' money. And they come out and this is our budget. No real debate on the floor of either the House or the Senate. And they'd pass a budget virtually unanimously. And it happened that first year. Everett said no. And 12 other patriots said no. And there were 13 people. Well, he pulled down the wrath of the of the insiders. He assigned Everett to a, a commission and a, and a committee at the legislature that he didn't know much about. That's what they do. If they like you, they'll put you on the committee where you'd like to be in the fisheries and wildlife. Banking. If you're good at banking, you understand banking and lending procedures, you know, and their banks, and their credit unions, and their private lenders, and even the private lenders have to obey rules. So they had these, uh, they, they put Everett on some committee that he preferred not to be on, but he toughed it out, and he ran again for re-election. The second time he was elected, there were 26 Republicans who voted against the Baldacci budget. 26. Doubled it. So you keep doubling it, you know, it builds up kind of quickly. So third year, the Republicans said no. There were enough Republicans that said, no, we don't want to raise taxes. That they defeated the budget. Oh, the progressives are upset. Both parties. You people are a bunch of reprobates and you don't know what you're doing. Just consider the effect on the people. Well, the old DHS, before it was DHHS, was recruiting people to come to Maine to be on welfare. They still do. 
But they began to work with Everett because he re- they realized that he had built a constituency. And then Everett and a few other Republicans and a few Democrats also formed a group in the legislature. It wasn't an official committee. It was a caucus. It was a bunch of guys that got together over breakfast, and it was the Rural Caucus. They advocated for rural Maine. And this was unheard of. You know, Half of Maine's population lives within 50 miles of Congress Street in Portland. Just stick a compass in Congress Street and swing a 50-mile radius. goes up almost down to Kittery and goes up to, to West Gardner and actually touches the boundary of the city of Augusta. And it goes west over, over toward Freiburg. But within that 50-mile half circle is half the population of Maine. And congressional, excuse me, legislative districts, House and Senate both, are determined by populations. We've got 35 senators, so we've got one out of 35 Mainers is in one, is in a senatorial district. That the size is determined by the number of people there. Well, as people leave northern Maine, these boundaries are expanding. The size of the district is getting bigger because they have to have the same number of people represented. There are four House districts in Portland, and the four House members are within walking distance of each other. District 141 is the largest district land-wise in the state of Maine. It goes from Mattawamkeag, Maine, to Edmonds on Cobbs Cook Bay, salt water. Then they're in a shoreline of District 141 and watch the tide come in 18 feet when there's a full moon or a new moon. And you watch it six hours later, it's 18 feet lower. And it's, there's a little brook going down through that bay, fresh water running down through there into the ocean. Just lay there on the fresh water, and uh, you know, get a suntan right beside the right beside the brook. But you want to watch it when the tide starts coming in, because when it rises eight feet, eighteen feet in six hours, well, that's rising three feet every hour coming in. That comes up quick. Comes up a foot in twenty minutes. That's the rate. And then District 141 goes from the town of Chester, west of the Penobscot River, all the way east to Vanceboro. And Vanceboro is on, is on the Canadian border. You've got Vanceboro on the U.S. side, and you've got McAdam, New Brunswick, on the other side of the St. Croix River. Look at the total number of towns. Now, most towns are 36 square miles, six miles by six miles. The towns are laid out that way. They figure that's it's a good size for a township. And there's an awful lot of townships Maine with zero population, like up in the Allagash and the St. John area. There's a lot of townships that have a population of zero. 
And then you've got these dense cities like Portland, Lewiston, Auburn, Bangor. Bangor's a small city. Bangor's got fewer than 30,000 people. I don't know the exact title. I could look it up, but it's you know it's not a big city. This place is in Bangor was good bow hunting. They don't allow you to hunt with a shotgun or a rifle in Bangor, but this place is in Bangor was good bow hunting for deer. Deer stands down there. So uh, got this huge district, District 141 that Everett represented. I took Everett McLeod to his first ever Republican caucus. He was in Princeton, a bunch of towns from Grand Lake Stream, Talbot, Waite, Topsfield, Codyville, all got together at Princeton to have their caucus. And it was in the evening. Most most caucuses in their daytime, but this was in the evening. And uh, it was good driving. Caucuses up here are usually held in February, sometimes March. Republicans got together and he introduced himself and said that he was running for the legislature because, you know, we need to get some fiscal responsibility down there. And he was also a strong advocate for rural Maine. Good fellow. He got reelected, and that was the that was the year that uh, that they defeated the budget, much to the dismay of the of the the insiders down there. And then, whenever it was elected the fourth time, that would be would have been his last term. But Everett passed away in January, so he was elected in November, sworn in in December, and passed away in January. So we haven't had a strong advocate for rural Maine in the legislature in recent years, but the person that's in there right now is termed out, cannot run again. And I've been asked by the legislature, well, several legislators down there, to run for the big house. And in recent years, I they're not able to run because I couldn't leave the house for for a week. I'd spend the week down in Augusta and uh, and come home. But uh, now I uh, I have that opportunity, so I'm running for the legislature. Northern Maine land man. I've been an advocate for rural Maine since 1974 when I was elected to the planning board in Verona, Maine. Verona's an island in the Penobscot River. And the Verona Narrows Bridge goes across there. It used to be called the Waldo-Hancock Bridge. Verona was in Hancock County. It still is. <laughs> but, but it is in Hancock County, and, and the other side of the river is Waldo County. So the great big suspension bridge that was there is uh, was removed. It was old, rusty, and Cables were rusty, and they took it down because of the cables. The cables could not be replaced, and they were just too rusty to be safe. And it lived its useful life. They didn't have the the treatment and the rust resistance treatments that that uh, are available today. You could build a suspension bridge with that will ever rust today. But they uh, 
And they did. They built a new bridge. But I got elected to the state, to the uh, uh, planning board at Verona. And they asked me to serve. I mean, I'd only been there a year, year and a half when they asked me to serve. Town, townspeople came and said, would, would you serve on the planning board? I said, well, I'm new here. And they said, yeah, but, you know, you, you do a good job. We think you'd be good on the planning board. I said, okay. So I agreed to serve. And then I picked up the, the law book, which was the main land use act that they had passed on September 23, 1971. It went into effect. Main Land Use Practices Act, LURC. And it gave a huge amount of power to LURC. And it gave a huge amount of power to local boards, planning board, conservation commissions, people like that. You have to be really careful who you elect these places because we've got a lot of progressives down there in Augusta and we've got progressives in local towns and they realized that I was not a progressive and I would stand up for the landowners so they put me on the board and I read the rules holy mackerel how did that happen well I checked and I found out how that happened and I served down there for three years, and then uh, I got an offer from Georgia Pacific to go to work for them. They they look around, find people that they think would do a good job for them, and I went to work for Georgia Pacific. And I was not involved with land use matters very much. I was full-time superintendent. GP, and then then uh, we moved to Lee in eight, 1983, August 1st. And the first year, they asked me to serve on the planning board. I said, well, it wouldn't be my first time. I know a little bit about it. So I got elected to the planning board, and I've been on the planning board ever since. 35 years. Well, I got I know the history. I know the rules. And it's uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny because people arrive and they have superstitions about what's required. You know, people think that houses have to be parallel with the road. You know, going by your house, the, road, the house should be parallel with the road. But there's no such rule. It's just they have this impression that this is the way it needs to be done. If that makes them happy, that's fine. But I help people plan plan the sites where they're going to have to buy a piece of property and they want to build a camp. Okay. Well, they want to build a camp in this little valley. Well, it's probably not a good idea. Why is that? Because that water runs downhill. The water's going to run right underneath the camp. <laughs> and it's going to heave. It's going to move. The frost is going to lift the camp. And then the frost is going to thaw. And the camp's going to drop down. It's not going to be in the same place. It will not be level. It will never be level. Put the camp over here on top of this little knoll. It's not a steep hill. just a nice place. It's 
it's a little bit higher, get a better view, a little more sunshine in the wintertime, shaded in the summertime, and easier access, good place to park your vehicle on that level spot where you were going to build a camp. And uh, it works out great. I got to work with a logger oftentimes. And when he buys a chunk of woods that he wants to harvest, the state's made it more difficult to do this. The state refers to this as strip and flip. If you buy, buy a woodlot, do a, a nice responsible harvest, take the big saw logs and some of the pulp wood, and take out some of the trash wood for biomass, ship that up, you got a nice looking lot when you're done. You got a road in there that goes into where they loaded the wood. That's what we call a landing. This is where the logs land, you picked up and sorted out by species and get loaded into trucks. That needs to be reasonably level. Well, reasonably level is also a good place to build a camp. So this particular logger will call me up and say, Hey, you want to take a ride? Sure, let's go look at the lot. Okay, here's where you want to have your landing. And your main twitch trail coming in needs to be right at this angle, right here. You say, Why that angle? I said, Because that's where the sun's going to set in November during deer season, right at that angle. So you can sit in the camp that's facing the sunset, and it'll be pretty. And at the same time, you can put a little door in the camp, a little tiny door, 10 inches wide. 20 inches high, and a little shelf there with this rug on it. What's that for? Says, That's so you can open this little door without banging it and drop that big buck standing down there 150 yards down that twitch trail <laughs> without ever getting out of the camp. Your camp makes a heck of a deer blind. Deer there, they're there year-round. That's the same piece of landing where I found that pager laying on the ground. Somebody dropped it during the previous deer season and uh, told the story about that. Texas Rangers were really interested in that pager. So a lot of experience is useful experience. Some experience teaches you yourself. You say to yourself, self, don't ever do that again. Brought my snowmobile home, had it tuned up. 20-year-old snowmobile, I had the dealer replace all of the plastic tubing, the fuel tubing, the oil tubing, all the tubing got replaced. Now it's going to be good for another 20 years. I lubricate it and I make sure it's all tuned up and everything. And it's worth it having the dealer do that. You don't, you don't skin your knuckles. So I brought it home. It was a nice day, like today. Today's a nice day, partly cloudy, sunny. It's going to get up to about 35 or 40 degrees today, northern Maine. Perfect maple sugar. I washed my snowmobile. Got a plastic bucket and got some Dawn dishwashing detergent. Dawn dishwashing detergent is great. It, it cuts grease. It really does. When you're doing your dishes, it cuts the grease clean up your pots and pans and your plates and everything. So anyway, I'm becoming more of an expert at washing dishes, I'll tell you. 
Well, I washed this old bill. And uh, the driveway was icy. And I learned that there is something even more slippery than wet ice. Soapy wet ice. I wasn't wearing my my yak tracks. This is the, the traction aid you put on the bottom of your shoes. Maine State Police use them. Good, sensible people use them. They're easy to snip on, easy to slip off. And they really help. Well, I stepped around the snowmobile, and I stepped on that soapy wet ice, and I started down the driveway, standing up, doing a dance. Did not want to fall flat on that wet ice. And I didn't. Finally, I got down to where I came to the snowbank and stuck a foot in there, swung around and stuck the other foot in there. I said, whew. I walked back in the snowbank, but I couldn't walk uphill in the driveway. Soapy wet ice is slippery. Where are your yak tracks? Where's the wise? Got a guy going to close on this farm on Wednesday. I think I'll give him a set of yak tracks. He's an older fellow. And in Maine, in the year 2020, half of the adults, half the people over the age of 18, 18 and older, are going to be over 65. Well, being people tend to live a long time. I looked in the back pages of the paper this morning at the coffee shop, and we passed the paper around there. Everybody gets a chance to look at it. There's only four obituaries in there in the Bangor Daily News. They'll probably wait till Monday to put them in. Anyway, there's only four in there. But you look at the obituaries, and, you know, once a week there's somebody over 100. Lots and lots of people are in their 90s, and they pass away. You know, they they get to the point where their body wears out, and they pass away. Most of my family lives into the late 80s or 90s. I look back, and wife and I were married for more than 50 years. We almost made 53 years. But in my family, on my father's side, I got four generations in a row that married 50 years. So both parents lived into their 80s. And more, into their 90s. And my, my mother's parents lived into their 80s and passed away. So I got the genes. <laughs> and I, people say, well, gee, you know, why do you want to run for the legislature? You know, don't you? I figured you'd be retired by now. They said, well, I'm 29 years old with 47 years' experience. <laughs> I've got the vitals of a high school athlete. I had my physical last, last Monday. And uh, I give blood, you know, about five times a year. If I can make it, I'll give blood six times a year. You've got to be 53 days between blood donations, I think it is. Anyway, my blood pressure is blood pressure of a high school athlete. I'm in good shape, I'm healthy, and uh, I'm running for the legislature. District 141, largest district in the state, which also means it has the lowest population density in the state because the same number of people are spread out over a much larger area. 
town of Lee is the most populous town in the entire district, and Lee has around 920 people. Second most populous is Danforth. Danforth's got around 500. Then it drops down to Princeton. Princeton is a bigger town than you realize. And it goes all the way down. Grand Lake Stream, famous places, West Grand. West of Grand Lake Stream, there's very few people. And Grand Lake Stream is just barely... Uh, Grand Lake Stream borders a vast area of timberlands. And I've told you the story about Domtar purchase of the old GP mill in Woodland and how they didn't want to buy the timberlands because they knew they couldn't control their land use. So five guys from New Hampshire bought 425,000 acres. It was a straw man deal. They bought it. They formed a corporation called Typhoon LLC. Just had to invent the name. Maybe that week there was a typhoon out in the Pacific. So what do you call a typhoon, LLC? They file the papers. doesn't cost anything. Well, maybe maybe 20 bucks or something. I don't know. It doesn't cost much to set up an LLC. You've got to have a treasurer kind of keep an eye on things. So they, they bought this thing. And 19 townships. 19 townships. 425,000 acres. And then they they sold it. They sold it to Hancock Trust, which has nothing to do with Hancock Lumber, that fine main company. Hancock Trust is the investment and retirement arm of Yale University. Yale University slapped a conservation easement on nearly all of that 19 townships, which cut the economic heart right out of the middle of Washington County. Testified about these matters. I testified when George Bunker put in a bill going to war against the timber industry. One of the things he put in there was you can't have more than one driveway in each piece of property. Some legislator from down Yarmouth wanted to do that because he didn't want his neighbor to have two driveways. So you pull in one driveway, pull up by the front steps, drive out the other way without having to back out into the road. So I said, I forget the exact number. I said, Great Northern has 19 miles of road frontage on Route 11. You're saying you only want one driveway at 19 miles? Oh, well, we'll exempt, we'll exempt the large landowners. Okay, so they they exempted large landowners. And then all the large landowners walked out. They had people there to testify. They all walked, left the room. Once they said, okay, well, you know, <laughs> they should have stayed. I stayed. And there was only one person on that committee that lived north of Augusta. They appointed people from all around Portland to be on the the forestry committee. And I testified against this thing, but it was like whistling in the wind. 
They didn't want to hear it. George Bunker had submitted that bill. George Bunker lived in Kasuth, population 16. He ran the log cabin restaurant in Kasuth. Got elected to the legislature. And uh, he was, his father built the restaurant. His father had been in the Navy. He was a Navy cook. George Bunker was in the Navy. He'd been a Navy cook. And he was a good cook. It was a great restaurant. But a logger conducted a harvest right near George's piece of property. George had about three acres there in Kasuth. And he cut right up to within 50 feet of the restaurant. And he was just outraged that the logger had disturbed his image of how the neighbor ought to have to use his land. So he went after him. And I'll tell more about this story next week. But I'm running for the legislature in District 141, the largest district in the state. I've been advocating for rural Maine ever since 1974. Still at it. And several legislators asked me to run. And now I can. So I'm doing it. This has been the Northern Mainland Man Show on the Constitutional Radio Network, Conscious of Maine. Broadcast today worldwide on TalkShoe Radio. Just Google TalkShoe Radio, Northern Mainland Man, and you'll find me. Might even have a picture on there of my smiling face. I haven't looked at it lately. And I don't know how many. We've had more than 260 hours of Northern Maine landmen. If you ever get really bored. So be safe. Stay off the ice. That warm water from the brooks is running under the ice. The ice is going to be thin. Be careful. God bless.